Hello and welcome to the first flagship episode of the Lawyer Better podcast. I am Russ Adler, your host and also a consultant and coach to law firms. To learn more, go to lawyerbetter.com, my site. Our first guest in our first podcast today is the Honorable Larry Seidlin, a retired circuit court judge for decades here in South Florida, Broward County, Florida. I've asked Larry to come on to the podcast to give his perspective and his wisdom and his advice to lawyers, whether you're a young lawyer or a new lawyer. Anyone who appears in front of judges know that these people are all individuals, they're different people, and you gotta get to know them and you gotta figure out their temperament and the best way to communicate with them. Uh, Larry is one of the most memorable judges who was on the circuit uh, court. Um, how long were you on the, on the bench for, Larry? I spent 28 years on the bench. Okay. I was in the county court, circuit court, and just about every division in the court system. Yeah, and you know, you and I are getting to the age where a lot of lawyers, young lawyers, don't know who you are. They don't remember you. They don't even remember the case that put you on the map of publicity. <laughs> but we're going to come to that. Um, let's start by having you give us a brief uh, background, your education, um, your employment history, uh, and so forth. I feel like I'm taking a deposition <laughs> here. But number one, you're not under oath. Uh, and second of all, uh, it's not a deposition. But uh, we've both been through enough of those. So um, well, start I went, from the beginning. I, I went to Hunter College where I majored in accounting. And then I uh, went to St. John's Law School for two years. And I transferred to the University of Miami Law School where I graduated. As I was in Miami Law School, I clerked, interned at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And didn't you play on the tennis team there as well? I was on the tennis team in Hunter College, yeah. Okay. I was captain of the team there. All right. And then I joined the State Attorney's Office in Broward County as a prosecutor. I spent a year and a half there. And then the sheriff sends a, a car for me. I figured I screwed up some case. And he offered me a job as his legal advisor. I was really his valet because uh, he was a very wise man. And I spent... What do you mean by valet? What, what well, I, I would him? drive him at night to political functions. And we, we just hit it off. He decides to run for Congress. And he says, Larry, you'll go with me to Washington. You'll be my chief of staff, and we'll live at the Watergate Hotel. And I lived in a hotel for 20 years in Fort Lauderdale. I said, Sheriff, we have it so good here. Why do we want to go to Washington and be freezing again? I, I said, let's stay here. And is that when you applied for the bench, or how did you get to be on the bench? I convinced them to let me run for judge. He, the sheriffs in the South are the most powerful political figures. Okay, and so you ran for judge, and you won? I ran for judge, and I was down a few thousand votes at midnight, so the media had me as the projected loser. But about three hours later, it turned around and I got elected as the youngest judge in the state of Florida. And snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. How old were you as the youngest judge in Florida at the time? I was 28 years old. I spent 10 years in the county court. Yep. And then the governor of Florida appointed me to circuit court. Mm -hmm. Who was the governor at the time? It was Bob Martinez. And he always reminded me that his heritage was from Spain. And I spent 18 years on the circuit court bench. Okay. And what division? I was in a bunch of divisions. Every chief judge sort of uh, would 
they would sort of satisfy which division I would want to go into. Okay, but you circulated through all of them during the time yes. that you were judged. So let me ask you a question. Uh, because lawyers of all stripes, of all specialty areas, of all practice groups, um, maybe and hopefully are listening to this podcast and, and can benefit from your wisdom. That's, that's why we brought you here. So my first question to you is, what was the most difficult division to work in as a judge? Well, absolutely the criminal division. In the criminal division, the judge has to be very quiet and silent. You don't kid around mm -hmm. because... If it's a murder case or a manslaughter case, that case is going on appeal. And, and therefore, everything you say is on that transcript. <laughs> you have to be very careful. Okay, so let me ask, ask you this, okay? Um, looking back all the years you sat on the criminal bench, and you probably handled some misdemeanor criminal cases when you were on the county court as well, Okay. Um, what were the best attributes of prosecutors? And after this, I'll ask you the same question about the public defenders or the private defense attorneys. So let's start with the prosecutors, because, you know, to give some value to our audience, you know, I, I'd like you to tell us from all of your years on the bench, the, be the prosecutors who you remember, uh, you know, what do you remember them for? They, you know, Maya Angelou, the poet said that people are not going to remember you for what you said or even what you did. People are going to remember you for the way that you made them feel. And, you know, running into some, a lot of my friends from back in the day, I was with a bunch of judges last night at some party. Um, it's really true. You know, they said, well, you were always this way or that way, and I remember you as, you know, all nice things, right? Well, well Russ— but what do you remember for, as a prosecutor? Again, for the prosecutors, what attributes, you know, are the best ones that, that left you with the best memories of them? The lawyers that would appear in front of me that were working for the prosecutor's office would be dignified, they'd have decorum, and they'd be respectful. In other words, when you make a ruling, let's say there's some prior motions before the trial, you, you, you thank the court no matter what the decision is because it's a long battle and the judge is the one giving the grades. And I, I found the lawyers that did not interrupt the other lawyer. You let the other lawyer speak, even if they're saying things that are untrue. You right. let them finish what they have to say. You don't interrupt. Number two on the hit parade is you don't um, talk to that lawyer when the judge is in the courtroom or in, in his chambers. You don't directly have a conversation with the other side. Right. And those are all pretty basic things. I think a lot of lawyers know that. But then again, one great challenge that we're seeing in newer lawyers is the fact that for the past three years, most court, maybe not so much in criminal, but most court appearances are done by Zoom. And, you know, one thing that I'm noticing is that on the lawyer side, they're just not, it's hard to train lawyers, um, you know, on Zoom during COVID. And some people have remained remote. Right. And, you know, it's it's very different experience when you go to a Zoom hearing versus a live hearing. Have you been well, you're still my understanding is you're still practicing yeah. law these days to this day. How long have you been practicing for altogether? Well, I left the bench. I left um, 16 years ago and now I'm practicing law for the past 16 years. So 16 years plus how many on the bench? <laughs> 28. You're trying to guess my age. <laughs> no, I'm trying to figure out how many years you're practicing. So it's like four, it's, 44 years. Um, it's longer. It's yeah. about 40 because I was a prosecutor 
and legal visa. I'd say it's about, we're, we're reaching towards 50. Um, you know, Larry, you strike me as a very relaxed guy. Um, and I remember you from when I practiced <laughs> as a very relaxed and even funny judge. Now, if I could just turn to the whole um, judicial temperament thing. How would you describe your own judicial temperament when you were on the bench? Well, you, wa you watch a James Bond movie or uh, one of these movies and the bullets are flying. You must remain calm and, and deliberate and, and keep your sense of humor because we got to get through the day and many other days beyond. Right. So I, I never would uh, show anger or uh, disappointment to an attorney in front of his client or her client. And if I, if I felt the lawyer went too low, went below the bar, I would then speak to that attorney privately. And I had a big chambers because I was right. there so long. But I had a chambers the size of a bowling alley. Yeah, I remember. It was very <laughs> long, like something you'd see in a movie. But, you know, but to, but to sum it up, again, um, you are a judge who really had a sense of humor, um, was always smiling and funny. I really never saw you get upset or angry or yell at anybody. And is that a fair description of your disposition, or I'm sorry, your temperament as a judge? Yes. Okay, now can you describe, during the years you served, how would you describe the judges on the other end of that spectrum? In other words, you were on the, the lighthearted, funny side. Some people thought that you weren't serious or were kidding around because, you know, you used humor, which is a very effective uh, weapon and shield, actually, in litigation. But uh, what's on the other end of that spectrum of judicial temperament? Well, you have every uh, element of personality uh, of, the, of the individuals that wear the black robe. We're surrounded by mediocrity in every field. I've been in so many fields in my lifetime. And I would say to the sheriff, who was one of my mentors, an old Irishman, I'd say, this person is acting like a meatball. He says, Larry... Talking about another judge? <laughs> or a police officer, a no, judge. But I'm just asking about judges yes. and the temperament on the other end of the spectrum from yours. Just describe what that person would be like. They would be serious much more serious than you in, in terms of their optics and how they come across to lawyers, right? Yes. Would they have a sense of humor? Do they all have a sense of humor like you? No. I, right. I, I, I was sort of the right-hand person to each chief judge. Each chief judge made me their administrative judge. So every chief judge has to run for re-election every uh -huh. two years. And I had a good relationship with every judge in that courthouse downtown in Fort Lauderdale. Right, and that's part of the temperament. But was, was is that, I'm just asking yes or no, and I was not putting any names <laughs> I'm trying on to avoid a little bit of that. No, I, I get that. And, you know, many of the judges who served during your time are either retired or have passed, right? Yes. And there's a new wave of judges in there. We'll get to that in a minute. But based on everything you remember, to sum it up, judges on the opposite end of the temperament scale would be much more serious not a sense of humor, and you know, to the you know, and maybe sanctioning more willing to sanction lawyers and things like that. I right? can answer your question Please. in a quick story. Good. I'm at a judges conference. The judges meet twice a year at different parts of the state of Florida. So I, I would wear my my shorts, my tennis shorts, because I always play tennis, 
So a bunch of judges from Jacksonville, Tampa, they said, come out with us to dinner tonight. So I'm in the car, and I'm talking, and they're laughing. And they say, you're not from New York, are you? If you're from New York, my father would be spinning in his grave knowing I got a New Yorker in my car. You got to get out of the car. It's pitch blackout. So I convinced them to let me stay in the car, and we go to some uh, redneck place for dinner where they're drinking Johnny Walker. And then at the end of the night, they, they you mean, turn— You mean Jack Daniels? <laughs> yeah, J Jack Daniels. That's what I thought. Keep going. And at the end of the night, they, they said, tomorrow, do you own a suit? Tomorrow, put on a suit cause, and just say yes. So the next day, they elected me the vice president of the judges' conference. The judges cover every element of, of the kind of people we, we deal with every day. Have you ever heard the old saying, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge? So is there any truth to that, or, you know, um, what are your thoughts about that well, proverb during the time that you were on the bench uh, and nowadays as a lawyer? It, it helps me enormously with my background when I appear in court. Um, there's good memories of me with the judges and the lawyers, and even my opposition uh, treats me uh, with distinction. Yeah, but that's all because you're a former judge, but... Uh, most of the lawyers out there, including ones who will listen to this podcast, are not judges and don't have that leg up. A lot of times they are unknown. The judges don't know them. Or maybe, you know, their only encounters have been on Zoom when these, in, these soft skills, these interactions just aren't present, which is really a big problem out there. And I, I work with individual lawyers on the mindset coaching part of that, which is a big part, right? I, I, but, I, but I'm just asking... How about, do you think it's true, and now you're giving advice and your guidance to lawyers who are listening to this, to them as lawyers. A good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. And I'm not trying to imply any impropriety there. No. I'm just saying, you know, knowing, knowing the judge, the benefits of that. So just speak generally to that for us. I, I, I believe most, if not all, the judges got there because because they have strong brain power. And therefore, you must remain strong as the attorney, but you also need to have some flexibility. You need to have, flexibility also is a level of intelligence. You need to be flexible and adjust to what's taking place. Kind of the, like to go with the flow. O almost to go with the flow, remain strong, remain committed to, to what you want, from for your client but you need to have some flexibility and you otherwise you're not going to do well in the case that you're working on and you're going to burn out you know i'm still thank god going strong after all these years i'm enjoying it as a, but you're enjoying it as a lawyer yes so let me come um forward to nowadays right so nowadays you're a practicing lawyer you meet with clients you you, you get clients and you participate sometimes in cases as the liaison with the client. Yes. Right? Um, just generally speaking, uh, how do you find that? I refer to that as the care and feeding of clients, and oftentimes clients can be your worst enemy, right? Yeah. So, so do you feel that you're able to handle that well based on your years of experience? Yeah, I partner up with the top lawyers in, in the different areas of the law. Uh, my, one of my uh, primary responsibilities is speaking to the client.
I always right. speak to the client within the same day. Okay, but aside from the responsiveness part, which is a given, and that's, you know. But I mean, the, you, a lot of lawyers are not doing that. Well, and then, I think that's why the number one cause of bar complaints, to my understanding, is failure to communicate, failure to return phone calls, failure to be responsive. You definitely have that part locked up. I'm talking I'm, as, I'm talking. I'm at 11 at night. Right, but I'm sure you've had easy people to deal with and really difficult I people to deal with. I got a bunch of nuts, too. So th what about being a flexible communicator? Is that something you found important in the care and feeding of clients of, of all types and yeah. stripes? Or as I was an accountant, I was a school teacher, I was a professor, been an author. And, and you were a cab driver as well in New York yeah. City? You they said, yeah, the New York Post had me on the front page, taxi cab driver, former taxi cab driver in charge of Anna Nicole's body. <laughs> I remember that well. Okay, so you brought up uh, the final thing I'd like to visit with you about here. Um, you know, I mentioned that some, a lot of the young lawyers I talk to and deal with do not know who you are because they're just so young, and many of them don't remember the Anna Nicole Smith case. I know she's still pretty popular um, in social media and all of that. Her legend lives on. <clears throat> touted as kind of like a modern-day Marilyn Monroe. So what happened was um, several years ago, about 2007 or 2008, um, some may remember that over at the Hard Rock uh, Casino in Hollywood, Anna Nicole Smith was there as a guest, and uh, unfortunately it turned out that she had overdosed um, on, on medications, and since it was in Broward County, um, probate issues would land in the probate court, and this one landed in your lap because there was a dispute about uh, where she would be buried. Tell us a little bit more about um, that issue that was before you and that ultimately propelled you uh, to the national spotlight. Well, when I had the Annie Nicole case, it was 16 years ago. She was a pop icon. She was the second coming of uh, Marilyn Monroe. She dies at the Hard Rock Casino. It's in, it's in Indian Reservation, but it's in the city of Hollywood or neighboring Hollywood. And the case winds up in front of me because I have to decide where we should bury Anna Nicole's body because different family members and friends were contesting where she should be buried. Well, one, that, one group wanted her buried in the U.S., and there's some family members. Yes. But who wanted her buried in the Bahamas and why? Well, why is a complicated story. And but I'll, but had, just the point is... we. There was, there the son was buried there, right? The yeah, son died there, good. was buried there. Yeah. Right? And was that ultimately the reason why the argument, the strongest argument, about why she, she should be buried in the Bahamas? Yeah, and I took okay. this guy next to me, Russell Adler. He came with me to the Bahamas. Okay, because... we're going to get to that one. <laughs> All right. But I want to get to the ruling first and what happened at that time, okay? Right. So some may remember that um, during a particular hearing uh, where things got emotional between family members, uh, I mean, all judges have emotions. Right. Some show them more than others. Um, you're a very, you know, um, <laughs> you're very transparent about all of these things. And um, what I remember, uh, it was really the only time I'd heard of that, but who else but you, Mary, <laughs> um, you began to cry on the bench during the hearing. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I, you got I, emotional. I, I, I teared up. Okay. I, I, I was throwing in the uh, towel at the end of the case. What do you it, mean? You were, you were making a decision? No, I was going to retire. I knew shortly after the, 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 the expiration of the case when it ended. So I was thinking of all the cases I had. 
and all the kids, young people who I had touched their souls, I knew that was the end of a of an era for me. Mm-hmm. And um, but is that what was going through your mind? Is that why you got emotional realizing it's the end of your career? I was also we we worked so hard in trying to get the right decision for Ann and Nicole. Right. But wasn't that but wasn't that a situation where, you know, someone was gonna come out of there disappointed and the other side happy that they got their way. You knew that. Yeah, well they appealed me immediately. They ran up to the fourth district court of appeal where I sat for a week as Uh an associate justice. Okay. And um, they ran up there and the appellate court within a day or two uh, affirm my decision. So they expedited the appeal because we had a body that needed yes. to be buried somewhere. Yes, it was okay. decaying and it had to be buried. Okay. All right. So um, ultimately you decided that she was to be buried in the Bahamas. Yes. Ultimately, okay. her son had died a few months earlier. Also from an overdose, sadly. Yes. Yeah, methadone. Mm-hmm. And, and then I decided with the help of the, the attorneys in the courtroom that I would bury her in the Bahamas. Right. And, Larry, you mentioned earlier, but you and I did take a trip over to uh, Freeport, I think. Nassau. Uh, Bahamas, Nassau, Nassau. To look Nassau. around and to just kind of get current or just get your eyes on all the places that there'd been so much evidence and testimony about, right? I know you were very curious well, to see that, but you were also working on your book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We and, wrote, we, I wrote a book in 2010. And what was that called? The, the killing of Anna Nicole. All right. So we, you and I went over there for some photos. And uh, if you could bring up, um, Christian, we have a, a photo um, of you kneeling by the graveside there. Yeah. Um, and the, the stone I, I is... I look like a kid there. <laughs> you, you look a little younger, but you still look pretty good uh, for, for your stated age. But, uh, yeah, so the, uh, the headstone there is etched with Anna Nicole obviously, and also on the right, and the son, uh, Danny, on the left, right? Yes. Uh, and how were, you, how were you impacted by that visit? Um, it, was, it was an interesting trip. We went to a lot of different places. We even uh, stuck our, our heads over the wall of the walled compound where she was living and all of that. But, you know, what were your, what were your thoughts, what were your sentiments uh, at graveside for Anna Nicole? Well, it's interesting um, I made a decision in that courtroom, and I wasn't given all the facts at the time. So I've had reservations about where she's buried since. Her son, who had no relationship to the Bahamas other than to see Anna Nicole's child, um, he was buried there. Uh, I, I later felt that his body should have been exhumed and 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 hers should be exhumed. They should be buried in Texas. Yeah, but you didn't have jurisdiction over the son's burial or body, did you? My Russell's always smart. Yes, I had no jurisdiction over his okay body. But, but you did. So I, I understand what you're saying. But you could only work with what you had jurisdiction over. Very good. I got that. So Larry, that going so back. So you're to gonna that, you were gonna be partially my therapist too. <laughs> I think that's been the case for the past twenty years. That I know you, but that's really the subject of a different mind uh, podcast because mindset is really a huge part of what I do, and it's a, it's the reason for so much progress that so many lawyers I work with 
uh, make. But, you know, this is the part about imparting wisdom and experience. So with that said, Larry, um, going back to your ruling when you got tearful, um, you know, Saturday Night Live actually spoofed you and had twice. a skit. Twice. And they did they it twice. Did it. They had to make fun of me twice. So why twice? I haven't. Because <laughs> it went good for them. So uh, I will put links to that uh, in the show notes, so our viewers can uh, take a look at that. It was a while back. I remember it was hysterical. <laughs> it was. Um, my wife hates it. Okay, but how did you feel about it when it was on? I, I just think that it's all fine. It's all fine. You keep going. In this lifetime, you keep moving. You keep jogging. I said to Diane Sawyer, you leave your enemies in your dust. That's, that's a good one. Leave it behind you. Learn from the mistakes. Learn the lessons. Yes. And forget the emotional part. Right. Uh, so why was your wife so upset about it? And, you know, well, what are her she thoughts? Did, she didn't like the actor that imitated me and didn't like that part of uh, the trial. He looked just like you, though, bald guy. <laughs> he has my hairline for sure. <laughs> right. But I know you take things in jest, and yes. I think that's good. And, yes. and you know, in, in uh, my work that I do uh, with lawyers, I really work on the fact that humor uh, can be both a shield and a weapon. I always used it very effectively um, to communicate, because if I could make a judge smile or laugh with some smart-ass line or, you know, quick joke, that's always a good thing. And about the only thing that would upset my opponents even more is if I had a jury laughing. You make yeah. a jury laugh, it's very upsetting to the other guy who may not know how to do that, but do you agree uh, that humor is one of the most you know, valuable lessons to take away, those of us who yeah. use it? And very self-deprecating humor. You know? And also, like my partner Carl Carmen of 17 years, who you know well, um, he always used to use humor. In fact, whenever we were around somebody else, he'd say to me, Russell, there's a Greyhound bus leaving town <laughs> at 6 o'clock tonight. I want you under it. <laughs> yeah, so. you, you should, as a lawyer, you should not exhibit anger, hostility. I mean, who, the judge doesn't want to sit there and listen to that all day long. Make your argument. Make it strong. And, 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 and make it uh, deliver the message as kindly as you can. Right. You know, what I like to tell people is to fight fire with water not fire. And what I hear from, you know, judges uh, lately is that the younger lawyers are, are really struggling. I understand why. We spoke about that earlier. But perhaps, you know, to be more giving and forgiving, not to take things personally, and to use humor um, as either a sword or a shield. You agree? It's, it's very difficult to uh, have the proper balance. And, and um, I try to help as many attorneys as I can and I know you know you you had the golden touch when you practiced law it depends who you ask but thank you well you were like Liberace was the, with the piano you were like that with, with a jury well, thank you <laughs> now I try to impart that knowledge and wisdom to the next generation I've tried enough cases well but you, I do appreciate that well you, know? you always held uh, lawyers in that courtroom Thank you, you. You, a, you had sort of like even a dance step when you would walk in that courthouse. Really? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. no video I could replay, unfortunately. So, Larry, as our final question, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like <laughs> you to look at the camera in front of us. Keep it on the wide shot, please. Okay. And look at the people who are going to be watching this podcast or listening to it and give them your final words of wisdom and advice. In, in this practice of law, 
as in the walk of life, you need to continue to have a balance. Over here. To the left. There you go. Oh, sorry. Right, go ahead. Look me in the Should eye. I'll ahead. start again. Yeah, like you're ruling from the bench. Make your ruling. And in we'll this conclude. lifetime and in the practice of law, you must maintain a balance. You must keep your wits about you. And the sheriff, who was so close to me, and others who have advised me and helped me through my career, you must keep doing what you're doing each day pretty much the same. You exercise, you eat well, and you try to always do the right thing. When in doubt, as the Florida Bar Journal had on the front page, when in doubt, don't do it. Do everything by the book and, and righteous because it's not worth it otherwise. Nothing is worth getting up in the middle of the night and not being able to sleep. You do everything properly. There you go. Well, thank you so much. Retired Circuit Judge Larry Seidlin, I'm really honored sure. to have you on the first episode of the Lawyer Better podcast. I hope our users get some value out of this. I would love to get some feedback uh, in the comments. Um, and I'm going to put those links to the uh, Saturday Night Live skit in the show notes. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please hit that subscribe button. And let's get a following going here because I'm here to give value to you. Thanks and have a great day.